Welcome to DealCast, I'm Juliana Needham. Today we're talking about one of the biggest live deals, Bayer and Monsanto. I'm joined by Deal Reporter's Head of European Merger Control Coverage, Francesca Micheletti, and by Joseph Tippograph, who is Washington DC Bureau Chief. Firstly, to you, Francesca, the EC has stopped the clock in this review. What can that indicate? And how long could the clock be stopped for? Yes, well, uh, we saw the Commission stop the clock uh, uh, in its phase two review on 21st of September. Uh, so it's not unusual uh, for the Commission to stop the clock in its uh, phase two investigation. Uh, technically, it means that the Commission has issued an RFI uh, which has not been responded to within a set time limit by the parties. Uh, at times it can be more nuanced, so it can be that there is a kind of agreement between the parties and, uh, and the Commission that there is a need to buy more time. Uh, a key question we will be asking here is whether this stop the clock is a move to avoid the statement of objections. If the clock hadn't been stopped, an SO would have been due normally by the end of October, beginning of November, as it generally goes to the parties uh, uh, within day 40-45 of the review. With this stop the clock, uh, the deadline, of course, is pushed backwards. So what the parties could be doing is thinking about uh, uh, tweaking their earlier remedy offer uh, and therefore avoiding an SO. Uh, Our understanding, however, is that the Commission still has all options on the table uh, on this review, which in our reading means that the concerns are still yet to be firmed up and uh, that there is still some work in the review to be done. Uh, So a statement of objections might not be uh, so um, an unrealistic uh, possibility. In any case, uh, this is something to look at for the next next weeks. And the Competition Commissioner Vestager is subject to intense lobbying, as she's mentioned herself when opening the Phase 2 investigation. How does that political sensitivity play into the review? Yes, that's a good question, because uh, Vestager herself uh, has uh, said on several occasions, including the opening of Phase 2, that she uh, will not uh, be taking into account non-merger-specific arguments, for example, arguments relating to health, safety, etc., uh, that this is something that's to be dealt with by other services. It is also true, however, that case teams uh, generally can give a certainty of like 70% uh, about the outcome that a uh, deal review should have. And there is always a margin, uh, there is always a margin for the decision maker to... Uh, to act. So she will need to make a call in the end based on what the case teams tell her. And uh, it's interesting, it will be interesting to see what that call is based uh, on. Uh, In general, we have the feeling that she really wants to get this deal right in particular because it's a high profile deal and because of the political sensitivity attached to it. So what we can be certain of is that the Commission is giving it a thorough look. And uh, if we go back on remedies, uh, uh, the remedy offering phase one appears to be far from the outcome that uh, the Commission is looking for. The deal's being scrutinised by a number of other agencies, including the US Department of Justice. How is this interagency cooperation going, and are there any significant differences between the approaches of the different agencies? 
Yes, so well, uh, the Commission and the U.S. agencies generally have a good track record of cooperation, especially at staff and working level. Uh, cooperation uh, has been increasing uh, in cross-border merger review over the past years, so uh, we feel that could still be the case. There are, however, some differences, uh, for example, in timing. The DOJ's analysis uh, has a different uh, time frame, generally. Also, in theories of harm, uh, we feel that the Commission is looking at, um, among others, at conglomerate effects uh, in the Baron Santo transaction, while the DOJ, the U.S. agencies, typically do not do not examine these types of effects. Uh, so, again, one other difference: uh, cross-border cooperation between agencies is particularly important here because. Uh, uh, a potential remedy we feel uh, would need to be a coordinated effort. It couldn't be a um, different outcome in, uh, in different agencies. Well, what about your thoughts on, on the um, coordination, the friendliness between the agencies with, with a different president in the US? Yes, yeah, so our feeling uh, uh, is that this could have... Uh, I wouldn't say deteriorated, maybe that's a bit too strong, but there has been a change perceived at all levels uh, of DigiComp uh, after the change of administration in the US. So this could potentially uh, mean that the uh, cooperation is a little less well-oiled than before, but I'll hand over to Joseph who can elaborate. So I think there's a, a lot of important things that we've started to s- discuss here, and, and, and certainly the global coordination, the leadership, and where things stand with that is a very important theme of what's going on, particularly between the U.S. and the EU. The change in administration is certainly one thing that has changed how the U.S. is looking at it. We have uh, the Republican Party now in office, and they take a slightly different approach to these types of issues than the, the Democratic Party under Barack Obama took. Um, But it also coincides with the EC's decisions against certain U.S. companies, uh, unrelated to necessarily this deal, but against Google, Amazon, Intel, where only the EC came out with enforcement actions against these companies that are all U.S.-based companies and, and did so applying theories of harm that typically aren't applied in the U.S., so that has certainly gotten the attention of a lot of enforcers in the U.S. and is, I think, in the backdrop of, of what's going on when we're talking about coordination between the agencies at the top. And what about other trends that in, in cross-border merger control that will shape the outcome of, of this particular deal, Bayer Monsanto? So one of the great things that Francesca highlighted is the difference between the EC and the U.S., in, in sort of the substantive analysis. Uh, she mentioned that the EC looks at conglomerate effects and the, the U.S. does not. That is 100% correct. Uh, but there is a way that what the EC can look at as being conglomerate in nature, the U.S. may look at as being vertical in nature or even potentially horizontal in nature. And I'll give you an example. Uh, quite recently, the U.S. Competition Advocacy organization, American Antitrust Institute, penned a letter to the Department of Justice in connection with the Bayer-Monsanto merger. And in the letter, they discussed the possibility that the merger can enhance the ability and incentive for the parties to integrate seeds, traits, and chemicals, uh, TSC they refer to it, into proprietary systems or platforms that are closed to competition. So these, in many ways, are vertical concerns. We're talking about foreclosure 
uh, foreclosed access to rivals. And in some ways, these are horizontal concerns where we have competing systems and platforms that are being integrated into a single uh, system and platform. The uh, American Antitrust Institute's letter think, views that the Monsanto-Bayer merger can redefine competition in the agricultural biotechnology industry in ways that will be detrimental to farmers, consumers, and innovators. Uh, I would pay close attention to the substantive concerns raised by AAI because they tend to be the best insights we have into the DOJ's process and the DOJ's thinking. And this touches on another theme that Francesca talked about, which are the procedural differences. Where things stand with DOJ right now, based on our reporting and our understanding, is that the parties have substantially complied with the second request. Now, by statute, what that does is it creates a 30-day uh, waiting period for the agency to make a decision on the deal once the parties have handed over all the documents, once the agency has talked to all the third parties. However, that can be contractually modified between the parties and the government through what is called a timing agreement. And there is one in place here, as this has been going on for now a few months after substantial compliance. So the documents are all in, and the agency has a good idea of what the substantive concerns look like. And I think that the concerns being raised by the American Antitrust Institute most likely are the biggest risk to the transaction uh, from DOJ's perspective. What about other jurisdictions? We, we've heard about the EC, we've heard about the US. What about the other global jurisdictions? Well, we know that MOFCOM is looking at this transaction. And um, what we have reported uh, from MOFCOM is that they are likely to require some sort of divestiture but also some sort of behavioral conditions to address some of the vertical and horizontal concerns. And also recently we learned from Brazil that the, the superintendent general uh, has published an adverse report uh, to the regulator CAGE, which is the antitrust enforcer down in Brazil, um, raising concerns that are both that are all three, uh, horizontal, vertical, and conglomerate in nature. And, and these concerns mainly uh, relate to the genetically modified soybean technology and the soybean seeds, as well as the genetically modified cotton technology and cotton seeds markets. So there is a lot of scrutiny from a lot of enforcers all around the world. And how are they working together? How can they overcome the? How can the parties overcome the hurdles to this? Because it sounds like there are lots of con different concerns from different agencies. Are those agencies going to be able to coordinate to um, agree some remedies with the with the parties, or is that going to be a hurdle that can potentially stop the deal? Well, what we've seen so far is remedies has been a moving target. Um, in, in an effort to that, the parties have already started to work towards remedies. They have had one potential divestiture buyer already walk away from the transaction because the remedies were a moving target uh, responding to all of these different enforcers around the world. But the antitrust lawyers in the private bar are extraordinarily talented and, and they have been able to usher deals through that have been very complex in the, in the past. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Um, it's, it, right now, it does not, we, we do not see ahead of us a, a path to getting this deal wrapped up. That doesn't mean one can't be presented soon, but right now it's very murky as to what it looks like. And Francesca, coming back to you, you've covered lots of big deals in the past, lots of cross-border transactions. Is this one of the most complicated you've looked at? And, and can you see uh, the competition concerns potentially derailing the deal? 
it is a complex transaction and I think uh, what makes it complex is that in some ways it's unprecedented because it brings together a seeds and crop protection uh, company. So many think about Dow DuPont, which was cleared uh, earlier. Dow DuPont in a way was simpler because it happened in one industry, so crop protection. Uh, I think the EC and potentially other regulators are being exceptionally cautious about this because of the difficulty also in uh, forecasting what the effect will be in bringing a crop protection and seed maker together. So it is a very complex deal, uh, as Joe's mentioned, uh, a bit murky at this stage, so uh, uh, difficult to say if it is the most complex. I just want to quote an official who said recently, uh, referring to the Baker Hughes-Halliburton deal, that sometimes things are just too complex to remedy. So not all situations can be remedied. Not that this is a specific message to Bayer Monsanto, uh, but just a consideration that uh, remedies are not always possible. Great. Thanks, Francesca. Thanks, Joseph. And thank you for listening.